All right, we are live. Uh, looks like there's a few people coming in. I'm just going to um, adjust the settings for a minute. All right, so um, you have a few options. Number one, if you would like to be able to come on screen and ask a question live uh, using your webcam, you can raise your hand. Uh, your other option is to ask a question in the Q&A. Please do not ask any questions in the chat. Um, if you want to jump in on someone's question by adding something or asking for clarification or contributing to the discussion related to their question, please respond to their question in the Q&A box. Um, only thing to use the chat for uh, would be um, things that are not questions. Just got a chat from Marcus. Thank you, Marcus. Um, things that are not questions, um, or if someone is on screen using the webcam and is asking a question that way, uh, there is no question in the Q&A box to respond to. So if you do want to jump in on a discussion happening live through webcam with someone else, the only place to do that is a chat. So that would be the thing to use for the chat. But it, don't ask questions in the chat. Otherwise, uh, we're not going to see them. Then uh, one last thing. You can ask a question anonymously, but in an effort to make sure that everyone gets their questions answered, um, or that everyone gets at least one question answered and that things are fair, I will rotate and not, uh, I will not answer one person's, um, I will not answer more than one question from one person until I've gotten to everyone else. And so since I can't know who is anonymous, I'm treating anonymous as one person. So I'll answer a question, an anonymous question, but then I won't answer another anonymous question until I get through everyone else. Um, that it has asked non-anonymously. Um, so you probably will get your question answered more quickly if you are not anonymous, but you're totally free to ask anonymous questions. All right, let's see what we have here. So, um, okay, well, Rajesh asks a question that probably is on a lot of people's minds, which is, uh, thanks for the session, when's the vitamin book gonna be available? So, um, uh, I did send out an email update to everyone who pre-ordered the book on May 12th. If you did not get that email, um, I did make an effort. I didn't have complete control over it, but I did try to make an effort to um, not send the email to people who had ordered recently enough that the basic situation was already explained on the sales page. Um, and, so, and so I probably missed some people who should have gotten the email because of that. Uh, so if you would like the email that I sent out on May 12th, please email support at chrismasterjohnphd.com and ask for a copy of it. Um, the book situation is as follows. So uh, economically, things were going amazingly at the end of last year and up through January of this year to the point where I massively um, expanded my plans for what the book is going to be. Uh, which basically has made the Vitamins and Minerals 101 class constitute the core middle third of the book. Um, and uh, when I realized that I couldn't really get the job done by Christmas like I wanted to, and, and I put out a poll and over 98% of people who answered the poll said, take my time to make it the best as possible. I said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to take my time. So 
I crafted a, what I think is an amazing introduction that took a tremendous amount of time. I mean, I spent full time, like weeks, just making the introduction. And then, um, and then I started working on the first third of the book and the last third of the book. Um, and then all of a sudden, economically, everything crashed. I mean, it was kind of a slow drain in February. And then March, middle by mid-March, you know, obviously tied to the coronavirus pandemic, became clear that I, I couldn't even make enough money to um, not lay everyone off who works for me unless I just spent full time on the coronavirus stuff. Uh, at the same time, I think that coronavirus, um, you know, at, at least at that time and possibly now, I think that was the most important thing that I could be working on. I mean, it's still the case that the role of nutrition is massively underappreciated and a lot of attention needs to be brought to it. But everything has been so dynamically in flux with COVID that it's been real hard to get the, even the biggest plans done. So for example, I was, I was collaborating with someone uh, from Israel who had a very high quality study done based largely on my COVID guide uh, that was going to be a randomized controlled trial done in Israel. By the time, and this was, you know, very high quality with, do, you know, doctors and hospitals on board and stuff like that. And then by the time um, approval for the study came in, in Israel, Israel's caseload dropped to zero. <laughs> so we talked about like, maybe um, the caseload will go back up and uh, we'll get the study going, but maybe we're going to have to move it to New York. But if we get to move it to New York, we don't have all the same connections that he had in Israel. So we would have to modify the protocol a little bit to rely less on the doctors here. Um, but uh, of course, we would have to get it all reapproved here. Um, but then COVID sort of dropped off even here, like um, a couple months ago, uh, or yeah, about a month or a month or two ago. It was the case that, you know, regardless of what the stats say, um, I, you know, I couldn't uh, go 20 minutes without hearing an ambulance driving right by my road. And now, the, you know, maybe an ambulance one or two times a day max, maybe even one, every once, one, or day, uh, one or two days. Um, at the same time, the caseload has been dramatically increasing in a handful of states. Um, but you know, a week ago, everyone was saying, well, maybe it's just young people and that's why the deaths aren't going up. Uh, but as of a few days ago, it looks like the deaths are starting to go up, but we really won't know until next week whether the deaths are going up. So um, right now, I think things are, are in flux in terms of number one, um, you know, what is my civic duty and absolute necessity to the world to keep delivering COVID stuff? Um, and then number two, I think economically things are in flux. And so a lot of you have probably noticed that I've kind of dropped off the cliff on a number of my activities over the last couple of weeks, and I've just been building up the discount program in the MasterPass. One of the things that I'm experimenting with is, um, can I get the membership revenue from the MasterPass to easily keep going just by the intrinsic value of the discount program to sustain me just forgetting about everything for four weeks and just finishing the book and getting it out. Um, it's either that or I'm going to have to put aside enough money for me to say, okay, I'm going to take uh, 
four weeks off um, from everything and I'm going to let the revenue drop down to nothing. I'm just going to let the savings trickle out and I'll finish the book. The issue is I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to release a deadline that I don't know for sure I can meet. Um, and then for my own mental health, uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to think I can get going and half-ass it and then not finish it and then just feel, um, I, I'm not going to feel good myself about that. So I really want to set a very clear foundation where I can just pump hard on the book for three or four weeks, get it completely done. Um, and, uh, and so I don't know what that date is, but, um, you know, I, I'm really hope, I, I think it's very possible that, that the corner can turn um, in the next month. And I do have uh, my consultations completely cleared for August. And, um, ho you know, hopefully I can make August that month where I just completely power ahead. The thing is, it only takes, um, it's only going to take three or four full-time weeks of me just finding those three or four full-time weeks. So, uh, okay, so we have some chats. Uh, Ellie says the audio is low, but quite uh, audible, but quite low. Um, Is this any better? Can someone let me know in the in the chat if my audio is better right now? Um, Marcus says, whatever you do, don't push yourself over the edge. The most important thing is to get it done the way you feel satisfied with. I think the audio is fine. Ellie says the audio is better. Jeremy Fisher says the audio is better. Um, Walter says, I have no time hearing you. I wonder if Walter means I have no problem hearing you. Deb says that's better. Okay, I'm gonna assume the audio is better. So. That's my, that's my answer on the book. The, the crux of it is uh, only will take three or four weeks to finish, but making sure that I have the foundation to power ahead in those three or four weeks and keep everything, including my mental and physical health, but also, my, also the business, the membership program, and everything else sustainable um, is the key. And I'm basically spending all my time figuring out right now how to make that happen. So even everything that I'm doing with, you know, everything that you see me doing that's not the book is me trying to figure out what are the right levers I can pull where I set up that foundation that I can just power ahead and finish the book. That's my top priority. Um, okay, so. Um, all right, if I pause between questions, it's just for the sake of the show notes, I'm going to uh, collect a list of the questions. Zoom is an annoying and not keeping the Q&A afterwards. Okay. Marcus Matthiasen says, do you ever, do you find subclinical thiamine deficiency to be a contributing factor in many chronic diseases? I know you've been talking about thiamine in a podcast episode, but would like to hear some more about your thoughts on thiamine from a chronic disease perspective. Also, do you think it is necessary to use any specific form of thiamine for different purposes for example, blood sugar management, chronic fatigue, neurological issues, and pain management. Um, okay, so in terms of sub, like in terms of subclinical deficiency, is it common? Does it exist? Uh, hard to answer um, because, as usual, most of the data, um, most of the data that's clear is on severe deficiencies, but. There are some studies. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that the um, 
I wouldn't say there's a huge body of literature. There are some studies suggesting that even if you take a people, a group of people who have some blood sugar issues and they are not thiamine deficient by classical standards, you can give them 100 milligrams of thiamine hydrochloride a day and their blood sugar improves. So I think that's pretty good evidence that there is widespread subclinical thiamine deficiency. And you, I mean, you can debate about the terminology, right? A lot of, um, a lot of nutrition scientists and policymakers would object to using the word deficiency in that context. Um, but the way that, the way that I see it is, uh, if you do a study and you show that blood sugar improves with hundred milligrams of thiamine, um, unless you have a hypothesis about why 100 milligrams of thiamine hydrochloride would be acting pharmacologically rather than nutritionally. And by, by that, I mean having some different effect at a higher than normal level, a supraphysiological level, um, that activates some biochemical pathway that is never activated at normal nutritional levels that could be obtained from food, right? So I, in that case, I would say the nutrients is acting pharmacologically, but if it's just acting on the pathways that are, it always acts on even at nutritional levels in food, and you took 100 milligrams of thiamine hydrochloride to make that happen, then I think the reasonable interpretation is the nutritional effect that you probably did not need 100 milligrams of thiamine hydrochloride, but proof of principle you provided in that study, you went above and beyond whatever the actual amount of thiamine, hydro, thiamine was necessary for those people. Uh, and who knows what that dose is, but it's a nutritional effect. And so in that case, I, I, I personally am, com am comfortable with the terminology subclinical thiamine deficiency. Um, then uh, I, I, think that, I think that sums up my perspective on, um, on that. So I, I, think I think subclinical thiamine deficiency is common from that perspective. Um, in terms of different thiamine for different purposes, I just don't see the head-to-head -head studies that would be needed to really justify that. However, uh, I do think that there are hypotheses that are plausible uh, that suggest that neurological issues would be better treated with benfortiamine. But um, it, unless something came out in the last year that I haven't been, that I haven't seen because I've been paying so much attention to COVID or something like that, last I looked, there, there weren't, you know, clear head-to-head -head randomized controlled trials subdividing different conditions that people are being treated for thiamine for. So um, my perspective is, you know, it makes sense if you're dealing with a neurological issue and I would put pain management in there. Um, it makes sense to experiment for yourself to see whether benfothiamine might have a better effect. Um, if you're not getting a response from thiamine hydrochloride, then I think it makes sense to hypothesize that you might do better with thiamine pyrophosphate, thiamine diphosphate sometimes called, um, TPP. Uh, and that's, you know, I think that's a real gray area because conventional science would say that the TPP should be completely broken down to thiamine from inside the intestinal tract. But then again, uh, 
then again, uh, there's recent science suggesting that 4-phosphocantathene, which is a form of vitamin B5, is absorbed from the intestinal tract in, intact and just slides through the membrane somehow. So I don't like to be dogmatic about that. And I, I'm really in the school of thought of if cost saving is anywhere in your radar, start with thiamine hydrochloride, see if you get the response you want. But it would be reasonable to test that, test your results against benfothiamine, for, especially for neurological issues, TPP, especially if you're not getting the results you want. So Marcus adds, from my own personal experience, I find benfotiamine to be very beneficial for blood sugar management, while alethiamine is more effective for neurological issues. Uh, Marcus, that's super interesting. Um, I'm, uh, I, in terms of mechanistically, I'm surprised that alethiamine would even be use, more useful than thiamine hydrochloride at all. Um, in that it has traditionally been seen as a um, as like a dam like a damaged um, basically a breakdown product of thiamine being damaged, um, but there's not sufficient clinical studies to disagree with anyone's personal experience. So I think this is very much in a trial and error. Uh, era of thiamine understanding. Um, Marcus adds, with thiamine hydrochloride, I need to use very high doses, upwards of 600 milligrams a day. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, I think, I think your trial and error and, and personal experimentation is really useful. And there's not anything better than anecdote to go on with this. Um, and generally, I favor, if, you know, with something like thiamine hydrochloride or alethiamine or, or benfothiamine that has like no risk profile, I think personal experimentation is great. The only, the only downside to any of this, with the exception of some people who are sulfur intolerant and so have problems with high doses of sulfur containing nutrients, um, really the only downside of this is that you wasted some money on something that didn't work. So thank you for your question, Marcus. All right, Heather Chandler says, is one measure of magnesium more relevant than others when managing arrhythmias? Um, I assume by measure you mean uh, measurement of nutritional status, in which case um, I think you want to look at the serum level. Uh, but um, but with that said, I, I think that if you're trying to fix a problem with the serum level, you probably at some point want to look at the red blood cell level and the urine level. Um, and so, and I've, I've outlined a protocol with this in testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. But basically, um, there is a thought that red blood cell magnesium might be more sensitive to magnesium deficiency than serum magnesium. Um, however, I'm not sure that you can, um, that any of that data refutes that red blood cell magnesium is basically just, if red blood cell magnesium drops when serum magnesium hasn't, um, 
that's just because you, you have trouble get, transporting magnesium into cells. I think that's one uh, inter plausible interpretation of that. In terms of arrhythmia, red blood cell magnesium is not going to tell you more than serum. Serum is going to tell you more than red blood cell because um, red blood cells aren't your heart, for, no, for, for one thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, you're not going to get a heart biopsy and look at the magnesium concentration of your heart cells. Um, but then again, uh, or not then again, in addition to that, in the, in the heart, um, the serum magnesium is relevant because it represents the extracellular compartment of magnesium. And magnesium, uh, and generally ion flows across the membrane are what are driving arrhythmias. Now, with that said, um, one of the ways that magnesium could impact arrhythmias would be through influencing other minerals. Um, and so I would not recommend just looking at magnesium on its own. Uh, you definitely have to look at the calcium levels, the sodium levels, the potassium levels. I mean, those would be the big four. Um, and it's possible that magnesium is impacting those others, right? Because for example, you need magnesium to lower intracellular calcium concentrations and in, intracellular calcium elevations um, drive muscle contractions, including in the heart. Um, and then in addition to that, at extreme levels up or down of serum magnesium, you can have an you can alt you can have a secondary impact on the serum concentrations of other electrolytes, especially calcium and potassium. Um, so I I would say serum, but I would say if you're looking to explain magnesium uh, status on the table should be urine magnesium and red blood cell magnesium, as well as serum, not in place of. Um, but then if you're looking specifically at arrhythmias, I would not neglect to look at total ionized calcium, potassium, and sodium. So hope that helped, Heather. Okay, Anonymous uh, asks, with uh, Jeremy Fisher saying, wow, good question. So upload it in the comments. I've heard that people with African ancestry tend to have more tightly coupled mitochondria, which makes them more vulnerable to oxidative stress generated from energy overload. Do you think there are specific recommendations about what types of fatty acids are better or worse for people with tightly coupled mitochondria in terms of sat uh, SF saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, or polyunsaturated fat, medium chain fatty acids, any other dietary considerations? Um, interesting. So first of all, I'm not aware of the research on people with African ancestry having more tightly coupled mitochondria. And what, what I assume you mean by that is, um, is that energy inflow in the mitochondria is more effectively driven into ATP synthesis and less of it is driven into heat production. Um, I'm not familiar with that research. Uh, I do know that African genetics, um, at least continentally, is uh, 
extremely diverse, more diverse than on any other content. So I'd be surprised if that um, applied across all Africa, or maybe it does. I, I haven't seen that research. Um, if you have more tightly, uh, if you have more tightly coupled mitochondria, um, and you have energy overload, um, I'm not, I'm not, sh I'm not sure how that's supposed to lead to more oxidative stress. I would, I would have to see. Marcus says makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, given that they don't need as much heat production. I mean, yeah, I, I guess if you're talking about equatorial Africa, um, but but I would think that would be more a function of equatorial and tropical regions rather than the African continent. Um, but uh, I would, I, I don't know, I would need to see the research on relating tightly coupled mitochondria to oxidative stress because I could think of ways that it could go both ways. Um, so, I mean, for example, like if you do have more tightly coupled mitochondria and you generate less heat, um, you're going to have higher ATP levels that are going to exert a negative feedback loop on the breakdown of energy in the citric acid cycle and the input of energy into the mitochondria. Um, that's going to lead to higher glucose levels probably, probably lead to higher free fatty acid levels, especially in a state of energy overload. Um, but at the same time, I think one of the reasons energy overload drives oxidative stress is because the input into the mitochondria is too high and higher ATP levels would shut down that input. So, um, so I, I don't know if it would lead to oxidative stress. I think that depends. I mean, it's certainly the case that people with African ancestry have a much, much much higher rate of um, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, which that clearly leads to oxidative stress from lack of NADPH for glutathione recycling. Um, but I'm not sure about this. Uh, I would say that um, cholesterol, so I don't know about these fatty acids. Um, I'm not, I'm not so sure. So, so certainly medium chain fatty acids are going to increase input into the mitochondria. And so we're going to reverse the sort of blockade of, of energy input in the mitochondria. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it probably increase uh, heat production, but I would imagine it would probably increase oxidative stress as well. Um, saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, and I, I doubt they'd have a big influence, but in general, more fluid membranes are leakier. So if you are too tightly coupled and you want to uncouple, then you would want, I would think you would want more polyunsaturated fat, less saturated fat, but in particular, you would want lower cholesterol levels because cholesterol is a, is a um, I think of it as an anti-uncoupler, but you could call it a coupler. Uh, basically, the higher the cholesterol content of the mitochondrial membrane, the more tightly coupled 
energy input to ATP production will be. So I would think cholesterol and maybe saturated fat would exaggerate that situation, whereas maybe polyunsaturated fat would reverse that situation. I Probably the cholesterol is more relevant than the fatty acids, um, but I'm not certain of the hypothesis overall. So I think that was a lot of hand-waving and going back and forth, and uh, I hope that helped a little bit, although I don't, I don't feel like I answered that question very well. Okay. All right, so Pippa says, please, could you explain the biochemistry behind why medium chain triglycerides generate ketones even when consumed the large amounts of carbs? I understand that they go directly to the liver and are beta oxidized without the need for carnitine polymetrotransferase. Well, you, I mean, that is the answer. You, that's the explanation. What I don't understand is why the resulting acetyl-CoA is not just metabolized through the Krebs cycle, given that in the presence of ample carbs, there should be no shortage of oxaloacetate. Um, it's, it's all about the ratio. Um, so uh, if you have, I mean, so first of all, it's, this has been shown in human studies. We know for a fact that MCT oil is ketogenic, even in the presence of pasta, period, end of story. So, um, so I guess the question here is, you know, biochemically, why is it happening? Well, um, they go, they go into the mitochondria, even, even in the, um, presence of insulin, um, and a buildup of acetyl-CoA over the incoming oxaloacetate, uh, or excuse me, a high acetyl-CoA to oxaloacetate ratio generates ketones. Um, so the question is, Basically, this question is, why isn't there enough oxaloacetate? Um, so generally, um, insulin is going to favor the burning of carbs. And so generally, when you have a large input of carbs, um, yeah, you have production of oxaloacetate, but the, the metabolic conditions are favoring you burning it for energy, not you producing oxaloacetate. Um, and I think it's just a matter of, uh, I think it's just a matter of the ratio and the speed at which things come in. Um, and so, you know, if, um, if the MCTs are coming to the mitochondrion fast enough, and they're exceeding the rate at which oxaloacetate is produced, which is a likely scenario given that, um, given that A, um, the production of oxaloacetate from pyruvate is, is quantitatively minor anyway. Um, and, then, and then B, in the presence of carb stimulating insulin, you are going to get the, uh, the pyruvate even more preferentially burn for energy, um, then you will have uh, plenty of acetyl-CoA molecules that just uh, came in too fast um, to, to have an oxaloacetate matching them, and they wind up in, being ketogenic. 
So it's, it's not like uh, putting MCT oil on your pasta leads to three, four, five millimolar plasma ketones. Um, it's just that it leads to some ketones. So let me see if I can, I'm not gonna put too much time into this because if I can't find this quickly, I don't wanna keep people waiting, but let me see. Let me see if I can find one of these studies really quickly. Okay, I think I actually found it. So um, in one of these studies where they put a breakfast containing medium chain triglycerides versus long chain triglycerides and the breakfast was 40% uh, fat by calories. Um, wait, am I looking at the right study? Oh, no, not that one. Okay, this one. So, um, 12 healthy male students, and this is um, Van Wimmelbeek. Uh, actually, let me, let me make sure I put a link to this study in the, sh in the show notes. So, let me just make a, a note here. Okay, so um, 12 healthy male students of normal body weight ate four breakfasts, each separated by one week in random order. Each breakfast consisted of 300 grams of pasta, 100 grams of tomato sauce, and one of the following, either a low calorie fat substitute, 40 grams of olive oil, 42 grams of lard, or 43 grams of MCT oil. Um, when the subjects ate any of these breakfasts, they're their fasting morning ketones before the breakfast were less than 0.1 millimoles per liter beta-hydroxybutyrate. And when they ate the pasta meal with anything besides MCT oil, this dropped almost to zero. Um, so it was already at you know, 0.05, and then it flattened off for a couple of hours. But when they had the pasta with the MCT oil, it instead spiked to a little over 0.3 millimole. Um, so again, like on in a, a long-term fast, your ketones are going to get, um, or on a classical ketogenic diet, your beta-hydroxybutyrate is going to get three, three to four millimoles per liter. This is 0.3, right? So it's 10 times less ketogenic than the classical ketogenic diet that people are put on for epilepsy. Um, and then in total fasting, you know, your total ketones are getting even higher than that. So it's, MCT oil is not that ketogenic. It's a little ketogenic. And yeah, the carbohydrate can supply oxaloacetate, but if, that, if the MCTs are broken down into acetyl-CoA at a faster rate than that oxaloacetate is supplied, you will get ketogenesis out of it. And um, I think that the rate at which you can supply it's probably the case that the maximal rate at which you can replete that oxaloacetate is fairly limited. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in the presence of insulin, you are getting, um, 
more impetus to actually burn the carbs for energy anyway. Uh, Tracy adds, Tracy Stevenson adds, seems like also if there's enough excess really of carbs in the fed state, then there might be some negative feedback from upfront TCA cycle metabolites for more incoming acetyl-CoA into the TCA, letting acetyl-CoA move toward beta oxidation. Acetyl-CoA is a product of beta oxidation, not a input into beta oxidation. The acetyl-CoA is going into ketogenesis. Um, if there's enough excess of carbs, there might be some negative feedback for more incoming uh, no, I, I, Tracy, I see what you're saying, but I, I don't think that's the case. So um, as Pippa had brought up originally, um, the issue is that uh, generally, um, so generally if there's a buildup in citric acid cycle metabolites because you have a lot of carbs in the fed state, uh, what that is doing is increasing cytosolic citrate um, and also increasing mitochondrial citrate. Uh, actually, forget the cytosolic citrate. The mitochondrial citrate is going to be one of the factors along with insulin that's going to shut down the uh, carnitine palmitoyl transferase, CPT, which is the entryway for long-chain fatty acids and mitochondrion. One of the reasons that MCT oil is ketogenic in the absence uh, or in the presence of carbs and insulin is because the uh, MCTs are get into the mitochondrion without the need for the carnitine shuttle. So the buildup of citric acid metabolites due to carbs, uh, yes, will shut down the input of long chain fatty acids in the mitochondrion, but not the input of short medium chain fatty acids. And, um, and Pippa saying, yes, but won't it supply the oxaloacetate to allow the acetyl-CoA generated in beta oxidation from those MCTs to enter the citric acid cycle? And yes, in principle, oxaloacetate does that. But I believe the answer is just you can't make enough oxaloacetate under those conditions fast enough, um, maybe partly due to limiting capacity of oxaloacetate in, in general, oxaloacetate production from pyruvate in general, and probably also due to the influence of insulin shoving pyruvate towards being, um, being oxidized into acetyl-CoA. Uh, probably from both of those things, you just can't, um, you can't make enough oxaloacetate fast enough to deal with that acetyl-CoA load. And remember, it, you know, it's, it's not like there should be a situation other than this, where you would expect to need to make that much oxaloacetate. Because generally when you don't have the carbs, um, you're not trying to make oxaloacetate. You're, uh, you're sending oxaloacetate to gluconeogenesis and you're sending acetyl-CoA to ketogenesis. So generally operating in one of those two states, either you have enough carbs and you replete the oxaloacetate, but your main thing you're doing with carbs is burning them for energy. Um, or you don't have enough carbs and you're not even trying to replete oxaloacetate, you're using it to make gluconeogenesis. There really isn't a situation physiologically where you would want to take a carb load and mostly make oxaloacetate from it. 
And I guess the exception is when you're dealing with medium chain triglycerides, but obviously we haven't evolved a need to specifically deal with that one exceptional situation where you have an influx of medium chain triglycerides with carbs. Um, you know, Pacific Island diets have that when they have high starch, high coconut, but apparently the Pacific diet, Pacific Island diet doesn't cause a big enough problem to cause human mitochondria to evolve um, the ability to suppress ketogenesis in response to eating starch with coconut. Um, and so if eating starch with coconut just isn't that harmful, then, we, then there's no pressure to evolve an exception to the rule of biochemistry that generally when you have a lot of carbs, you wanna burn them for energy. And when you don't have a lot of carbs, you're using oxalastate up to make glucose. And there's never a situation where you have a lot of carbs and you're trying to mostly make oxalacetate with them. Um, so I hope that, uh, I think that answers it. Actually, I'm, I'm very sure that answers the question, but hopefully it was clear enough. I know that was very complicated. Okay, Tiana Talent says, my mom is a full-time caregiver for her mom who has Parkinson's disease. My grandmother's Parkinson's has gotten significantly worse in the last two years. And my mom has been struggling with her own health over the last year specifically. Bouts of elevated blood pressure, difficulty sleeping, severe fatigue, brain fog, anxiety, etc. She recently had cholesterol tested over 300 and has had elevated cortisol and four point saliva test. How is HPA axis dysfunction related to high cholesterol or is it? Thank you. Um, and HPA, is uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Um, I'm not sure that cortisol, I, off the top of my head, I don't know whether cortisol has a direct regulatory effect on cholesterol levels. However, I do know that it's very well established that generally cortisol and thyroid axis are antagonistic. And so, um, and there are multiple ways that that can happen, both, uh, both at the level of actually regulating thyroid output, but also right down to the level of thyroid binding to its nuclear receptor. So one of the functions of cortisol is to raise free fatty acid levels, and free fatty acid levels do uh, directly interfere with the binding of thyroid hormone to its nuclear receptor and will cause thyroid resistance. So... Um, I'm sure the cortisol is playing some role in the thyroid issue, but I think in terms of what's directly causing the elevation of cholesterol, it's probably a thyroid issue. Um, and then it seems like, I believe that's your question. Um, I'm not sure if you have another question about Parkinson's, but I, I doubt that the Parkinson's specifically is altering that relationship. So I think, you're, I think I answered your question. If not, um, please ask a follow-up. Thanks, Tian. Anita Morgan says, what are good things to do for blood circulation to improve varicose veins, slow flow during blood draw, nutrients movements, et cetera? Um, I don't feel like this is that well inside my expertise.
However, I do believe there is some evidence that vitamin K2 can play a role in preventing varicose veins. I haven't studied it very deeply. Um, and then I think movement in general is great for blood flow. I'm sure there's uh, a lot more to it than that. And I don't want to suggest at all that what I have said is the end of the story. It's probably barely even the beginning of the story. Um, but, you know, in improving blood circulation, I think the most important thing would be getting daily exercise, um, just cardio. Uh, because one thing is for certain, um, you know, exercise isn't going to necessarily drive all the aspects of blood circulation, but certainly without exercise, uh, you're not going to have a reason to be able to circulate your blood. And so of course it's going to shut down. Um, but then on top of that, nitric oxide is produced during exercise to facilitate blood circulation. And then I guess I'm going out on a limb here. I have zero knowledge of whether this can help with varicose veins, but in terms of blood circulation, I would imagine nitric, nitric oxide boosters nutritionally could play a role. And I would list at the top of that two to 10 grams of citrulline per day. Uh, and uh, assisting that, I would say antioxidant support and zinc. I right, hope that helped, Anita. Thank you for your question. Walter Schwedetsky says, how vital do you think fiber is in the diet? Um, I mean, I have, I have trouble seeing it as an essential nutrient, but I do think that the vast majority of human experience is including plant foods in the diet that provide plenty of fiber. Um, I think that Arctic diets are um, the exception to the rule. And I think generally as plants have been available in the diet, humans have eaten them. And when you eat plants, you get a lot of fiber. Um, and so from a baseline perspective, I would say the assumption should be that fiber should be present in the diet. With that said, um, I really think it's highly individual. A lot of people have uh, gut issues that respond very well or very poorly to different types of fiber. And so I think people should just experiment with the type, of, the type and amount of fiber that seems to best support their digestive health. If you don't have major digestive problems, then I would just look at your stool quality. You know, if your current diet is supporting good stool quality um, and you don't have any other problems, then whatever you're eating for fiber is probably fine. But if, um, you know, if you're overall healthy and you don't feel like you have digestive problems, but your stool quality is not good, then you should probably try to adjust your fiber. And if you do have digestive problems, I think it very much comes down to trial and error. Um, you can certainly use guidance from a healthcare practitioner and testing. But I think even with a healthcare practitioner and testing, it's going to come down to trial and error. What types of fiber and different types of foods and su fiber supplements do I respond well to? What make me worse? And I honestly believe that there's no blanket solution to anyone. So I hope that helps answer your question, Walter. Thank you for your question. Victoria Feinberg says, thank you for the AMA. You're welcome. 
Ben Greenfield recommends hydrogen water. What's your opinion about it? Are you planning offering discounts on it? Um, for example, Amazon offers H2 USB Sport Max hydrogen water generator with glass bottle and inhaler adapter. According to Greenfield, H2 water improves stem cells, delays telomere shortening, reactivates CERT1 pathways, thus improving the mitochondrial function. Um, I, uh, I haven't looked into this. Um, I like Ben Greenfield. And um, if you want me to include it in the discount program, then please post this on the uh, what other discounts would you love to see post. So um, basically the approach I'm taking for the discounts is either A, I use it uh, and believe in it, or B, uh, some, you know, you guys want it. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean I don't use it or don't believe in it, but, um, you know, I come up with ideas based on, um, oh, I like this. I recommend this. I would love this discount or based on people adding to the, um, well, other discounts would you love to see post and saying, please get this. Um, and so, you know, and that's, you'll notice that generally when discounts go out, a lot of times it has someone else's testimonial. It doesn't have something that I said about it. Um, and that's generally because, because someone asked for it. And, um, and so, you know, they're the person in the community that got the discount for everyone. They're the ones who love the product. And so they can share their experience with it. Um, so I haven't looked into this enough to necessarily use it, but that doesn't preclude getting the discount for it. It just has to be, um, that they, the basic criteria is that they would have to have an affiliate program that allows me to either use a coupon code or see in the affiliate program, the individual orders to verify that someone generated commission then I can get the commission back. That's a basic criteria. So Amazon has an affiliate program, but Amazon has no way whatsoever for me to know who purchased what. And so that's why I can't just like give 8% back on Amazon. Um, but, but anyway, uh, that, it's not up to you to figure out whether it qualifies. Um, just add that to the suggestions and then me uh, and one of my staff members will look into it. Thanks, Victoria. Kim Washburn says, is it possible to have all human nutrition needs uh, is it possible to have all human nutrition needs met on an animal-based diet? Um, yes. I generally think that um, uh, oh, by the way, so just to clarify, if uh, I'm not going exactly in order, I'm generally making sure that I answer every, every individual person's question um, once. And so um, if I skipped over your question, I will get to it. Um, we still have plenty of time left. So, okay. Um, is it, Kim Washburn asks, is it possible to have all human nutrition needs met on an animal-based diet? I'm guessing you mean a carnivore diet. Um, I'm not sure if you just mean a diet that's predominantly animal products, but yes to both. So I do think on a carnivore diet, there there are nutrients that are harder to get enough of. And I actually uh, put out a guide to doing carnivore right. Um, I'm putting a note right here. 
to include that in the show notes. But um, let me see. Uh, all right, so in Doing Carnivore Right, Vitamins and Minerals, which is a free nine-page guide that I made, I listed vitamin C and folate as high-risk nutrients. I listed manganese, magnesium, vitamin K, potassium, and molybdenum as conditional risk nutrients. Um, and then, and of course, how you do a carnivore diet is going to influence things. So for many people, calcium is a problem, but that's, that's less a function of them being on a carnivore diet. It's more a function of calcium is a problem for many people that don't consume bones or dairy. Um, now, in terms of the conditional risk nutrients, um, manganese is very easy to get from mussels. And you can certainly get enough if you eat certain select foods uh, that are basically all seafood. So three to 500 gram servings of Pacific oysters, freshwater bass, trout, walleye, pike, burbot, drum, perch, rainbow smelt, sunfish, and sucker. Um, you know, but it's pretty easy to be a carnivore who doesn't eat mussels or any of those fish. Um, then on magnesium, uh, most carnivore foods can provide enough magnesium with three to five pounds of food per day. Um, you know, but, but some cuts of meat don't provide enough, so you do have to be somewhat selective. And many people don't eat three to five pounds of food. So as with any nutrient risks, I think, I think um, particularly women who tend to eat less than men, but just anyone who doesn't eat a large volume of food, which definitely includes anyone trying to lose weight, are often at risk of not being able to eat enough total volume of foods that make very small, where you know each, each piece of that food makes a very small uh, contribution to the diet. And as long as you eat enough total food, you meet that. So you know, most of the time, three to five pounds of carnivore foods per day are going to give you at least a baseline of sufficient magnesium. Um, but then there's a handful of foods and actually this, uh, you can act in three to 3.5 liters of Gerolsteiner mineral water will all also do it. And I'm pretty sure most carnivores would consider um, mineral water to not be against the diet, given that it's not a plant. Um, and this gets a little tedious, so I'm not going to list them all, but I will, um, I will list doing, I will link to the guide. But I think if you just Google uh, Master John doing carnivore right. Um, the top result, oh, there's three results that come up on top. The first two are the carnivore debate part one and part two with Paul Saladino, both of which link to the guide. And then the third result is uh, actually the uh, place to get the guide. So, um, so there it is right there. And then, um, I think, but I think the, one of the issues is um, with potassium, you can certainly get enough potassium from lean meats, but I think it puts you between a rock and a hard place where um, if you, the only way to get enough potassium is to eat a lot of lean meat. But the more lean meat you eat, the more, the more collagen you eat and if, or excuse me, more collagen you need to balance it. If you eat more collagen, you displace the lean meat that has the potassium. 
um, you can reduce that effect by eating more fat, but if you eat more fat, you just wasted potassium. You, um, when you eat lean meat, the other problem is you consume a lot of sulfur amino acids, which are acidic. Generally, potassium is not alkaline itself, but it's extremely strongly correlated with organic acids that have an alkalinizing effect. Um, and so it's a very good index of those organic acids. And we don't have good databases of those organic acids. So um, because lean meat and potassium are going to be so strongly correlated on a carnivore diet, it might be hard to get enough potassium without, um, or it might be hard to get enough of those organic acids that correlate with potassium to balance lean meat. And for, toward that end, I created a database of getting potassium on a carnivore diet. You just Google Ma uh, Master John Potassium Carnivore, that should come up, but I'll also put a note to include the potassium carnivore database in the show notes as well. Um, then molybdenum, you can get enough molybdenum from 500 grams of cottage cheese or whole eggs, 3.8 cups of milk, 2.5 pounds of beef or pork. Um, but all those foods increase lean muscle uh, or sorry, not lean muscle, but they increase animal protein, non-collagen animal protein, which increases molybdenum requirements. So um, my recommendation on carnivore would be getting uh, 35 grams or 1.25 ounces of liver per day, which takes care of it. So now I think, and I put this as conditional risk because I think molybdenum is going to be quite at risk on a Sean Baker steak only carnivore diet but it's not gonna be at risk at all on a Paul Saladino nose to tail carnivore diet. So, um, you know, but at the end of the day, I put vitamin C and folate in, in the high risk category. I do think it's easy to get enough vitamin C to prevent scurvy on a carnivore diet. I do think you have to be mindful of get, eating the right foods when you do do carnivore diet. But I think it's um, very difficult to get enough vitamin C to hit 100 to 150 milligrams per day, which is what I think you would need to maximize the protection against chronic disease risk. Granted, um, it seems like plasma vitamin C of 50 micromoles per liter is where chronic disease risk bottoms out. And Paul Saladino says that that's what his vitamin C levels are. So I do think Paul Saladino's version of nose to tail seafood inclusive carnivore is the best way to um, maintain your vitamin C status. I think it's going to be radically superior to a Sean Baker style steak only carnivore diet. But, um, but I, I haven't seen enough people's carnivores uh, plasma vitamin C to be perfectly confident that that's usually going to be the case for most people. I don't know. So I put vitamin C at least for the time being in the high risk category. And then folate, liver and kidney are good sources of folate. Um, and there is some data suggesting that the RDA for folate can be reached by two eggs alone if the eggs are from pasture-raised animals, but I'm not highly confident in that data. Um, and I do think that carnivore diets might reduce the need for folate by providing choline and creatine, but uh, big gray areas here. I don't know that those things are true. Um, so there's lots of plausible hypotheses on how you can get enough folate on a carnivore diet, um, but I think 
folate should be considered for supplementation on a carnivore diet? So uh, the short answer to your question is yes, uh, but the long, longer answer to your question, as I just went through, is it's quite complicated. And then, um, you know, my final thought is, and I've said this with respect to vegan diets, I've said it with respect to carnivore diets, um, I think it's good to look at nutrition kind of like an economic portfolio. If you are very, very expert, you can know what you're doing in limiting the asset classes you include in your portfolio. So really know what you're doing. You can do carnivore or vegan, and you can do it right, or you can know whether you're not the right person to do either of those things. Uh, but if you're not super expert and you're not willing to say, okay, this type of portfolio isn't gonna work for me and my risk level, um, the best thing to do is to diversify. And you don't just diversify by eating different types of animal food, you diversify your asset classes. Um, so just like no smart person who's not a massive expert should put all their retirement account into real estate, um, it's just much more robust to error to uh, diversify your nutritional portfolio by eating a diverse number of animal foods, diversifying across the animal parts, nose, tail, diversifying across the species and doing the same thing with plant foods and thereby diversifying across plant and animal. All right, Kim, I hope that helped. Uh, hope that answered your question. Thank you for your question, Kim. Courtney Voss says, months ago when my husband and I were transitioning to a carnivore diet as a means of an elimination protocol, we both experienced shortness of breath episodes accompanied by some other chest restriction type of sensations, almost like we couldn't take a deep breath. Surely that had to be the result of some kind of deficiency. Electrolytes, it was fairly short-lived, albeit scary. Um, that can happen in scurvy. So given that vitamin C is one of the higher risk nutrients on a carnivore diet, that would be the first thing that I would look at. I'm glad it was short-lived. I think it's possible that there are vitamin C sparing effects of a carnivore diet, but they take a little while to kick in. So as you transition, you had a temporary scurvy and then, the, then you had adaptations that mitigated that. Um, certainly could be, I mean, it could be many other things. Um, but without doubt, I would look at vitamin C first. And given that it was short-lived, I think that's great. But I think that you should still do some nutritional testing to make sure that you're not in a marginal position on some of, the, some of those possible things. Thank you, Courtney, for that question. I hope that helps. Barb Ledoux asks, is the liposomal vitamin delivery vehicle really superior to other forms, i.e. tablets, liquids, et cetera? Um, I doubt it. So I think the evidence indicates that liposomes don't survive digestion um, unless they are like pegylated, which means that they have polyethylene glycol that's attached to the liposomes to protect them from digestion. There are a number of other such um, modifications that can be made, but I don't think that applies to most liposomal things on the market. So I'm generally very scary about, scary, I'm generally very skeptical of, um, they're not scary, 
but uh, I'm generally very skeptical of the claims that liposomal will offer superior delivery, particularly if they're not being specifically designed to survive digestion, which most are not. Um, with that said, there are people who swear by liposomal vitamin C being more helpful than um, non-liposomal vitamin C, so fine. I'm, I'm not, uh, not going to object to people testing it and following their data on their own empirical results with their health. But you know, given that liposomal things are usually a lot more expensive, I think it's wise to... Um, I think it's wise to give the presumption of cost effectiveness to the non-liposomal form unless you have convincing results otherwise. I hope that helps. Thank you for your question, Barb. Carrie Noeth says, I came down with COVID in March. I'm sorry to hear that, Carrie. I hope you're feeling better. I'm still having shortness of breath, numbness and tingling and low blood pressure. Looking to understand the best supplements to regain health and rebuild my immune system, what do you recommend from a daily supplement standpoint? Um, well, uh, Carrie, you do have, uh, if you're in here, it's because you're a MasterPass member and that means that you have free access to my uh, food and supplement guide to the coronavirus. Um, and so you should be able to just go in your dashboard and um, let me see here. If you go into your dashboard, um, currently it is the one, um, one, two, three, fourth thing. If you um, if you're if you haven't transferred to the from the old dashboard to the new dashboard, it's the third thing. If you signed up recently, um, and it will be the second thing once I get rid of the registration box for this AMA, which I'll do afterwards. Um, in terms of um, in terms of rebuilding versus uh, prevention, I'm not sure that I can say that much different. And so, I I don't think um, I don't think we really. And granted, I, I'm I'm a little short on the COVID research over the last couple of weeks. I have to get back into it. But I, I don't think there's a whole lot of knowledge here over why would someone not recover um, months afterward. And I think that, you know, I do wonder if you've had a CT scan and you know what the state of your lungs looks like, because certainly if there's lung damage, then, um, then that might take a lot longer to heal than if there is... Uh, no lung damage. Um, but um, I would look at your oxygen saturation too. Can you, can you do that? Because, you know, I wonder if some of these things are just secondary to low oxygen circulation or if some of them are independent. You know, so numbness, numbness and tingling um, certainly could have many causes. It's possible that you're using up a nutrient or something like that. 
Um, but it's also possible they were just not circulating enough oxygen. And so it, it might be that it all comes down to circulating enough oxygen. Um, there do seem to be electrolyte disturbances. Uh, and I did publish a COVID research update on potassium. There's a very large proportion of people who have low potassium levels. So I think you should look at that. Um, I generally would think low blood pressure would be more tied to loss of salt. So you should look at that too. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's lung damage, then I think apart from, uh, just doing things to support immunity and viral clearance, I mean, I guess that's another question, you know, would you still test positive for the virus? Because it's possible that you're not clearing the virus that fast. Um, but it's possible that you just have anti-phospholipid antibodies to it, which is half of severe cases. Um, and, uh, or it's possible that you just have, um, ex, you know, still elevated clotting markers. And I, and I think without lab data, uh, it's kind of hard to know what the best approach is. Um, so I, I'm sorry that I can't really um, help that much, but I, I guess my thoughts are, um, if it's a if it's a clotting issue, in which case probably your D-dimer is or certainly your D-dimer is elevated, um, maybe your CRP is still elevated. Then I think um, you know things, natural anticoagulants you could try like natokinase, for example. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to research the differences between the different uh, natural anti-clotting um, anti factors that are available. Um, that's one aspect. If it's an autoimmune thing, I think you could make a case for vitamins A and D. Um, I think you can, and these are all hypothetical cases, you can make a case for eliminating some of the pro-inflammatory foods that might be in your diet. Um, if it's an electrolyte thing, I think that's way easier to solve. You know, just make sure you're hitting at least five grams of potassium per day from your food. Use an electrolyte mix to give it to you if you're not a potassium supplement. Make sure you're getting lots of salt. Uh, maybe try an experiment to see Marcus says lumbrokinase is far more potent than natokinase, according to my own experience. Okay, you could try lumbrokinase. Um, I, would do a, I would do a trial with your blood pressure to see what impacts it. So just taking, uh, just taking one or two grams of salt mixed in water or, in, or just taking a pack of LMNT, if you have that, increase your blood pressure. If so, you know it's a sodium thing. And so monitor your blood pressure and your sodium intake to, to keep it higher. Um, but, you know, but then uh, I do wonder whether viral clearance is an issue. Um, if it is, then I think everything in the food and supplement guide for the coronavirus, uh, I would just maintain those uh, to promote viral clearance. So I, I wish I had better answers, but um, I'm very sorry you're having to deal with this, and I hope you have a speedy recovery, and I hope that I've offered some help.
Yolanda Brown asks, have you come across any information on immunomodulation using low-dose naltrexone for autoimmunity and or COVID? I'm aware of its use for autoimmunity. I haven't seen its use for COVID. I don't know enough about it to really talk about it now. And I'm sorry that I'm not uh, an expert in that. Marcus says, I think there's an ongoing study using LVN for COVID-19. Uh, great. Well, I'll keep an eye out for that and hopefully update my COVID-19 research updates newsletter if that comes out. Thanks, Yolanda, for your question. And thank you, Marcus, for your contribution. Gary Krieger says, if dietary fat is more likely to be stored as fat than dietary carbs, why is it that it's easier to lose weight on a keto diet than a higher carb diet, assuming isocaloric? Um, Okay, first of all, it's definitely true. It's easier to store dietary fat as fat than it is to store dietary carbs. Um, fat storage is, uh, I mean, why is it easier to lose weight on a keto diet than a higher carb diet, assuming isocaloric? Well, I think there's an assumption that's not necessarily true there, but the ease with which you store something as fat is not really related to weight loss. Um, so I think that's part of why that is true or part of why there seems to be a conflict there. Um, you know, so the implication of the fact that it is easier to store dietary fat as fat than it is to store carbs as fat is that when you eat too many calories from carbs, you will have a lot more fat that is stored as fat because the carbs displaced their use for energy in other words, the carbs were burned for energy instead of being converted to fat. So the fat you put into your adipose tissue. Um, if, if, that if it was not easier to store fat as fat than to store carbs as fat, then you would expect to have like under all conditions sort of a general mix of like if you ate more carbs, you prime, you would, like let's say you had your excess calories were 80% carbs, 20% fat, you would expect that the, your adipose tissue would reflect 80% fat that has been synthesized from carbohydrate, 20% fat that has been taken from dietary fat. And it doesn't work like that at all. If you eat excess calories, 80% carbs, 20% fat, the effect of the carbohydrate will mainly be to be used for energy in place of fat that would have been used for energy and instead is stored as dietary fat. Um, that's what it means for it to be easier to store fat as fat than to convert carbohydrate to fat. Um, that has nothing to do with whether you lose weight because whether you lose weight has nothing to do with which molecule you stored as fat and has everything to do with the overall caloric balance. Um, now, uh, assuming it's easier to lose weight on a keto diet than a higher carb diet, assuming isocaloric. By isocaloric, I, you know, I, I assume we mean um, not relative to your caloric balance, but they're the same calories on the high carb diet versus the keto diet. Uh, probably it's not. So, I mean, that's generally been shown through self-reported dietary intake in free living populations. Um, and self-reported diet is not accurate. Um, and free living populations are, you know, do not report and do not report accurately what they do. Most people, unless they're tracking everything, do not even have a reasonably accurate 
sense of what they're eating. Um, and so when you do like metabolic ward studies, you generally don't see that advantage. Um, I do think that there might be a very small advantage that is due to the inefficiency of gluconeogenesis and that is due to the loss of urinary ketones. And that might, and so on an extremely low carb diet, there probably is some metabolic inefficiency introduced that causes a slight caloric deficit. Um, but that probably only applies at the extremes and it's probably very small. Uh, and then it's not really isocaloric. Um, I think the overwhelming factor here is what's happening to your appetite and what is happening to the sustainability of your caloric deficit. And so I think there's a subsection of people that have really good appetite control kicking in on keto that allows them to eat less food. And, um, and I think that because of that, it winds up being a more sustainable diet than some other diet that would also introduce a caloric deficit that didn't improve their uh, appetite balance. And, you know, they may say that they're eating isocaloric in a study, but if it's not done in the metabolic world and it's not highly regulated, the assumption should be that, the, that it's not isocaloric. Um, so yeah, I think those are two completely separate things. The fact that it's easier to store fat than, than convert carbs to fat is why carbs in the diet displace fat in the burning of energy, and it's not related to weight loss. On the other hand, the reason some people do better on keto than on a higher carb diet for weight loss, and I do not believe that's everyone, is because the keto diet is mainly because it's helping with um, appetite regulation and sustainability. And, uh, and maybe on extremes, there's a very small contribution from the metabolic inefficiency of gluconeogenesis and the loss of urinary ketones, but that's um, probably less common and also very small. All right, Gary, I thank you for your question. Hope that helps. Catherine Knight asks, do you have nutritional suggestions, markers, or tests that might be relevant to improving SI joint pain and dysfunction? I'm 60 and looking at steroid injections as a next step as my sleep and ability to exercise has become increasingly compromised. I also seem to have sulfur sensitivity, sulfation issues. So I'm working with that constraint as well. Perhaps related, perhaps not, I have vitamin D SNPs. And at least a couple of years ago, was over converting my D. Um, well, not having seen the older data on over converting your D, I do wonder whether that's either an autoimmune issue or it reflects something else with vitamin D metabolism that is leading to some moderate hypercalcemia. Um, and so that right there makes me wonder whether the joint pain and dysfunction is more a factor of autoimmunity versus calcification of the joint. So certainly if it's autoimmunity, I'm thinking you might have problems with folate. Um, you might 
I mean, where you might want a low folate intake, um, you might uh, benefit from having more A and D. Uh, you might benefit from removing hypothetically pro-inflammatory foods. Whereas if it's a calcification thing, then I think you want you know, good fat-soluble vitamin nutrition. So you don't want to go too high on D, but you do want enough D. Uh, you need to get A and K2 in there. Magnesium is important. Acid-base balance is important. Citrate is probably helpful. Um, magnesium, if I didn't already say that a minute ago, and then on the sulfur issue, um, molybdenum and manganese are both important for uh, properly dealing with sulfur. And then you might also want to be looking at your gut microbiome as well. So I think short of molybdenum deficiency generally, people who are sensitive to sulfur often have gut issues that are driving production of hydrogen sulfide and or sulfite in the gut. All right, hope that helps, Kathleen. Thank you for your question. Pamela Schoenfield says, you have previously talked about the need for arachidonic acid and at the same time, lowering intake of EPA to help reduce immune reactions to food. What if someone feels that they don't tolerate eggs at all and does not eat liver? Does a supplement with GLA help? Desiccated liver capsules could be helpful, but can you suggest how many per day would be needed? Also, what foods are high in arachidonic acid? If this person also has a high need for choline, i.e. Egg, eight egg yolks per your choline calculator, could a low intake of choline contribute in any way to immune reactions to a wide range of foods? This individual has celiac as well, but has been strictly avoiding gluten. Um, okay, so if they have celiac, they probably have a pro-inflammatory uh, milieu in the gut. So that's certainly true. Um, I guess the question would be underlying that, could this person not have enough arachidonic acid? So apart from liver and egg yolks, I think that it is very difficult to get enough arachidonic acid from food. Yes, GLA might help, but there's actually arachidonic acid supplements. And um, for the vegans out there, I don't know if the production process is strictly vegan, but they are derived from a specific mushroom. And you can get them on Amazon. Um, so I think supplementing with arachidonic acid is probably the most direct way to do that. Um, and then, you know, evening primrose, primrose or uh, barrage oil could help provide precursors to the arachidonic acid. Desiccated liver capsules, off the top of my head, I'm not sure how many would be needed. Generally, it's six to nine equals uh, like... Six to nine a day equals four ounces per week. But I'm not sure if the desiccating process alters the ratio of your arachidonic acid to some other nutrients. So off the top of my head, I'm not sure. And I think it's probably wise to see if any given uh, manufacturer actually has arachidonic acid data on their liver capsules. Um, the high need for choline, I mean, I have the choline database that has uh, you know, searchable by foods. I'll put that in the show notes here. 
but if someone can't get enough choline from choline, then I think betaine, trimethylglycine or TMG is, is a, certainly an option. And I think it take, that takes care of a lot of issues. Just, um, uh, you know, just 500 milligrams of TMG will take, will really cut into that egg, egg yolk worth of choline requirement. All right, Pam, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Ben she says, do you think it's likely that a person can get a therapeutic dose of monolaurin from the in vivo conversion of lauric acid and coconut oil? That is a great question, and I have no idea. Um, I've often wondered that, but I either either the data doesn't exist or um, I don't I haven't seen it. Um, I just have no idea what the in vivo conversion rate of lauric acid to monolaurin is. I mean, I, I would think it would be real high in the gut, but then it might not be so high systemically, you know, because generally most triglycerides are broken down into mono and diglycerides in the gut, or you know, a little bit of free fatty acids. Um, and so, uh, or mono di and, and free fatty acids, I should say. Um, so it might have very high activity in the gut, but lower, much lower activity elsewhere compared to actually taking monolaurin, uh, but I don't know. Thank you, Ben, for your question. Uh, okay, LEZ says, hi, Chris, what can be done to aid POTS or tachycardia and strange feeling of getting up from sitting? I would look first and foremost at salt. Um, so I, I, I don't think that um, orthostatic hypotension is, uh, is all about salt, but um, salt is definitely needed to um, help the blood pressure response. And then uh, the heartbeat regulation is very much driven by electrolytes. And so um, maybe look at electrolytes across the board to make sure they're adequate. Uh, imagine that, you know, standing up, maybe you don't, um, you know, even if it's a pro if, even if the underlying issue is, is, um, a problem, like immediately adjusting the blood flow dynamics to that, it's still, you know, you're going to be, if you, if your electrolyte levels are marginal, um, then it's, I would think it would enhance that. Also, B12 deficiency can be tied to autonomic dysfunction in general. Um, and so I would look at that as a possible like general underlying thing that you might manifest in that way. Other than that, I don't have that much to say because I haven't spent much time researching it. I'm sure there's much more to say than, um, than I have. Marcus uh, has joined in and to say also thiamine could be helpful. All right, thank you, Ellie. I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Uh, Anonymous says, for a man on a low-carb diet, adding in more carbs seems to improve strength and energy, but seems to worsen nocturia, getting up about three times in the night to pass quite large amounts of urine. Can you help think of the reason why and any ideas for what might help? 
Um, well, um, I mean, I would start by looking at your blood sugar. So I do think it's possible that, um, that if your blood sugar, I mean, Marcus says salt. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you should look at salt. I don't know that that, um, okay. So actually I should start by saying I have, um, I should put this in the show notes. I have a video and if you're in the master pass, you have a transcript on this on how to stop waking up to pee. And if you're a master pass member, you can go to the Chris master John lights section and then search waking up to pee. And then um, episode 119, how to stop waking up to pee. <laughs> so um, in here we have, uh, and I think Marcus was kind of getting at this, uh, antidiuretic hormone or ADH is um, stimulated by, so first of all, it's regulated by the circadian rhythm. So you need to have a well-entrained circadian rhythm. Second of all, it's stimulated by salt. Uh, so salt at night might help. Third of all, in order to make it, you need copper, vitamin C, and zinc. Um, and then fourth of all, you need, uh, going past that, I also suggest in this video trying to get deeper sleep. You might want to look at the quality of your sleep. So, you know, I, I do think generally carbs help people get better sleep, but I do think that a ketogenic diet elevates GABA. And so I think there's a subset of people who would get better and deeper sleep on keto because of the increased brain GABA. Um, and then number five in that video, I put keep your stress levels low. And I do think that could relate to hyperglycemia. So, you know, if your glucose tolerance is poor and that, and you would expect for your glucose tolerance to be poor on a low carb diet, especially for a few weeks when you're transitioning. And so that just would require time to transition. Um, but certainly if this is persisting after being on a higher carb diet for a few weeks, then higher glucose levels in the blood could cause a stress response. So it could be elevating cortisol, you know, even though cord generally, generally glucose suppresses cortisol, cortisol raises glucose. Uh, I do think it's possible for spikes in hyperglycemia to be perceived as a stress that, that does kick in a stress response for some people. And then of course, one of the things you wanna do with glucose, if it's elevated in your blood is get rid of it by peeing it out. So if your urinary glucose is elevated, then you certainly have that. Um, so I would do a little testing, you know, test your blood glucose at night. Um, Test your sleep quality if you have a Fitbit or an Oura ring. Um, and then, you know, consider, definitely consider salt. Um, consider stress regulation for deeper sleep. Um, and then consider those other nutrients that I mentioned, especially copper, vitamin C, and zinc. In terms of, but in terms of the carbs, uh, you know, if you do get the, if you do are benefiting from the GABA effect of a ketogenic diet, then probably the best thing to do 
if you uh, have to increase carbs is take a GABA supplement, you know, or head into uh, the Chris Masterdown light section and search for GABA and you'll find a bunch of videos on different aspects of getting GABA from food and making your own GABA and increasing GABA function through other means besides supplemental GABA. All right, Anonymous, hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Okay. Um, Marcus Matthiasen says, what's your take on hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? And do you have any specific recommendations for dealing with this condition? From my own personal experience, it seems more like a physiological adaptation rather than a pathological condition, given that most people that have this problem also have some kind of deranged sulfur metabolism in general. Um, I don't really agree with your reasoning. So, if, um, I mean, I, I agree that most people that have this problem have some kind of deranged sulfur metabolism, but I don't see why that makes it a physiological adaptation rather than a pathological condition. I mean, the correlation is probably a direct result of the, of the predominance of sulfur metabolizing bacteria in the gut which is a bad thing that is actually causing the derangement in sulfur metabolism. That's what I think. Um, recommendations in dealing with it. Um, well, you could go the antibiotic route and um, I think uh, metronidazole and let me see if I can dig this up quickly. because I, I have done a lot of research on this issue for one of my clients. Uh, okay, so from the research I was looking at, metronidazole um, is very effective against sulfur metabolizing bacteria, but isn't that reliably delivered to the stool and uh, maybe could be used as an enema, but I think generally it is used. Um, and then I think there's one other, there's one other one that's sometimes used. Uh, I forgot what the other one is. I think it's, um, let's see. Uh, okay, I can't find it. Anyway, you could go the antibiotic route, um, you know, under the guidance of a prescribing specialist. And then um, I think that the herbs in Atantriol have promise, but I actually have a client who got worse because of it. So I'm not comfortable giving a blanket recommendation for it right now. Um, and then uh, 
I do think that um, eating a low sulfur diet while addressing the issue um, through whatever means a gut-oriented healthcare practitioner might work with you on it is probably necessary. Um, Catherine adds, Chris's comment about thiamine and sulfur was very interesting to me. I've never been able to tolerate D vitamin complex or straight thiamine. I have sulfur SIBO issues. Have you seen Greg Nye's new book, The Devil in the Garlic? I've not seen that, um, but I do believe there's a sort of syndrome out there of uh, people who cannot tolerate sulfur-containing supplements who have sulfur metabolizing gut bacteria at the, at the bottom of it. Marcus adds, no, but I, I've listened to many podcasts with Greg Nye. Thanks for the recommendation. I'll look into it. Marcus then adds, oh, I think he's saying that to Catherine. Marcus then also adds, some people believe that the excess growth of sulfur-degrading bacteria are a result of biochemical imbalances in sulfur metabolism, hence a physiological adaptation. Uh, so even if that's true, that doesn't make it not pathological. Um, I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, I don't think that you want hydrogen sulfide gas or sulfite being made in your gut at any more, at an elevated level. Um, and I don't think that helps you if you have a derangement in sulfur metabolism. I don't think it helps you to have, as a result of that, excess hydrogen sulfide or sulfite made in your gut. I think it's just a negative, period. Um, I mean, at best, it's a nuisance because you, your farts smell real bad. Um, but at worst, I think the hydrogen sulfide could cause um, dysregulation of gut motility, could leak into the body, interfering with general signaling effects of hydrogen sulfide. Um, and I think sulfite is an inevitable pro uh, byproduct of that metabolism. And I think sulfite is um, a terrible risk for mineral deficiencies, and general toxicity. Um, so I think it's across the board a bad thing. Uh, yeah, it, it might result from biochemical imbalances and sulfur metabolism. But I think it's far more likely to result from high intake of sulfur-containing foods and supplements. So for example, there's animal experiments showing that um, chondroitin sulfate, for example, uh, increases sulfur-metabolizing bacteria in the gut and, uh, you know, because there's very low absorption of chondroitin sulfate supplements. Um, and so if you overload your gut with sulfur, you're going to get increased sulfur metabolizing bacteria. Generally a bad thing in my opinion. Okay, Marcus, uh, thank you for your question. Hope that helps. Um, Carrie Noth says, I've seen conflicting data about iron following COVID. My levels are low and I just had to have a surgery, took it even lower. Do you recommend iron supplements for someone who's recovering from COVID? Absolutely. Um, Carrie, weren't you the one who asked about the continued shortness of breath? Yeah, I mean, riding on the back of your pre previous question, I, don't, I have no idea. Um, I have no idea why I didn't think of this before, um, but yeah, I mean, you probably have continued shortness of breath 
numbness and tingling and low blood pressure because you're anemic. Absolutely deplete your iron levels, period, and end of story. Um, and so, uh, no, I think, I think it's very clear. So COVID causes anemia of chronic disease that, um, I mean, so sometimes in anemia of chronic disease, you don't want to supplement iron because it could fuel the infection. But I don't think there's any evidence that iron fuels uh, COVID-19. And it's pretty clear that, um, uh, it's pretty clear that the systemic inflammation is driving dysregulation of iron in a way that hurts um, oxygen delivery. So I think it's very clear that, that um, low oxygen delivery is a major feature of COVID. And, um, and, you know, I think probably the bulk of that is due to clotting, but inflammation, and I mean, if you look at the CRP levels in, in COVID, like going up to the hundreds, right? Normally you want it below one. Your CRP is two or three, we say you've got a problem with inflammation. Um, you know, in COVID, uh, these problems are largely driven by CRP levels that are in serious excess of 150. Um, and so that's, that and the IL-6 are driving iron into ferritin at the expense of hemoglobin. If your iron level, that in itself will compromise hemoglobin uh, and therefore compromise the delivery of the already scarce oxygen driven by the clotting. And, um, and so the last thing that you want is an iron deficiency that you're not fixing. So yeah, I would, I would say no two ways about it. You absolutely want to fix your iron deficiency. Um, yeah, hope that helps. Thank you for your question, Carrie. Anita Morgan asks, when will transcripts of the AMA be available? Um, I haven't done one of these in a while, so I don't know if COVID is making them suffer, but I'll send it out today and hopefully they'll be back in a couple of days. But um, uh, yeah, but I, I don't know if business is being held up or it's, if it's operating more quickly because of the economy and COVID, so we'll see. Catherine Knight says, PQQ, my usual brand seeking health. Um, so at this point, we only have 12 minutes left. Um, let's stop incoming questions to, to make sure that I get to everyone. And I'll, I'll try to, there's 11 questions that are open. I'll try to get through everything efficiently. All right, Catherine says, PQQ, my usual brand seeking health, has been out of stock for some time. Do you know of another good brand source of straight PQQ, CoQ10, which is often combined with gives me weird pressure, headache, so I can't take the blends. PQQ had been very helpful for my fatigue, especially with physical work. Marcus adds, I find PQQ from Gerald and or Life Extension to build. Catherine says, thank you. Um, I'm gonna defer to Marcus on that um, because I'm just not familiar with PQQ supplements enough to make a recommendation. And then um, I would note that um, as a MasterPass member in our uh, storefront that, uh, that I'm not going to name by name, but um, if you just go into a, our storefront of 305 brands of supplements and search uh, PQQ, you can get Jero's product at 35% off, $25.97 instead of $39.95. Um, 
and then there's one from SolarRay, there's one from Pure Encapsulations, there's actually, there's like uh, 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18 uh, PQQ supplements at 35% off, so you might want to check those. Um, and you might want to price check it against Amazon. It's not always 35% because sometimes Amazon is below the retail value level, but, um, but I, I have yet to find something that is not at least a couple dollars cheaper inside our, our exclusive discount store than on Amazon. So um, I hit up that for Marcus's recommendations. Although I don't think life extension is here. Oh, wait a second. Uh, no, they also have life extension CoQ10 with, with PQQ. Um, although you can't take the CoQ10 one. So let's see. Um, okay, there is Jero in here. It has the PQQ remote. So yeah, definitely check out our store to get a big discount on your PQQ. Um, and thank you, Marcus, for helping with that question. And thank you, thank you, Catherine, for your question. Walter uh, Schwedetsky says, is there a way with nutrition to get rid of gallstones? Marcus adds bile acids, choline, less than glycine, taurine, TUDCA, and Chanka Piedra has worked for me, although maybe not for the faint-hearted coffee enemas are also great. Victoria Feinberg adds, enemas don't go into the heart, winky face. Um, I'm gonna defer to Marcus on this one. Uh, I haven't studied gallstones, I'm sorry. So thank you, Walter, for your question. I'm sorry I couldn't give more help. All right, Anonymous gave me a, a reference for the tightly coupled mitochondria issue, and so I'll include that in the show notes. And I'll also take a look at it later. Xavier Bateri says, how would you address an autoimmune chronic gastritis, please? Barrage oil, lower folate fasting. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I do think that generally for autoimmune issues, um, you could look at arachidonic acid, you could look at vitamins A and D, you could look at removing pro-inflammatory foods. I do think that gastritis can be tied to alcohol consumption. And I do think, I don't know if there's studies on this, but I do think that gastritis can sometimes be due to over-consuming foods that are just fueling uh, H. pylori growth in the gut. And um, so stomach acid issues might be relevant there, but I do think you should um, sort of scan your diet and try to tweak things to try to isolate things to find things that might be fueling any kind of um, gaseous symptoms in the stomach if you have them and if you do have them remove those foods. Um, fasting would remove those foods so you, you could go that route. Uh, but I, I unfortunately have not researched specifically autoimmune chronic gastritis um, sufficiently though I give you a very well reasoned answer. So. That's what I have for the top of my head, and I hope it helped. Thank you, Xavier, for your question. Uh, 
Anonymous says, what do you think is the mechanism behind why levels of thyroid hormone T3 drop in a low-carbohydrate diet? Courtney Voss says, great question. Marcus says, less insulin signaling and liver glycogen, I guess. Um, yeah, so uh, insulin and leptin are both positive regulators of thyroid hormone production and conversion. And um, generally, uh, I, I do think there's probably a larger effect from uh, thyroid production than peripheral conversion. I'm not too sure about that. Um, but insulin does directly regulate, um, it has TSH-like effects on the thyroid gland. It doesn't replicate all of TSH's effects, but it does replicate a, a portion of them. So you basically, you, be, you more or less have like TSH amplification with insulin. And so if insulin levels drop, you lose, you know, for a given TSH level, you lose total thyroid production signaling in the thyroid gland. Um, then on top of that, and so that's part of the T3 output since part of it is made by the thyroid gland. Uh, on top of that, I'm not sure if insulin directly does, but insulin does positively regulate leptin and I believe leptin regulates uh, thyroid production of thyroid hormone as well as peripheral conversion. Um, and then also uh, elevated free fatty acids do interfere with T3 signaling, although that's less of the T3 amount and more of the signaling effect. Um, so there you go. I think that's what it is. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Cam Schoenfeld says, I think you have suggested liquid liposomal iron as a very effective iron source for addressing iron deficiency. Would dosing be roughly equivalent to iron bisglycinate or other iron supplements available in capsules? Um, I got that original liposomal iron recommendation from Chris Crosser, and I, I think he switched his recommendation of bisglycinate. I'm not entirely sure. Um, and like I said in the previous answer to a question, I'm quite skeptical that liposomal uh, that liposomes even survive digestion. So um, I'm not sure that I should still recommend that. I would probably revisit that were I to make an iron recommendation right now. Um, generally, the recommendation has been less about efficacy and more about preventing bad gut symptoms in response to the supplement. But I don't see any reason that the dosing should be different. Thank you, Pamela, for your question. I hope that helps. Catherine Knight says, it looks like this is a follow-up. Nye's book is very good and will explain this further as well as how to work around it. I don't want to misquote Dr. Nye and do recommend the book. Uh, that, I think that's a follow-up to a previous question. Um, Marcus Matthiasen says, on a recent podcast, Tommy Wood was talking about the individual relevance and clinical significance of various genetic variants such as MTHFR. I know you have some extensive recommendations with regard to methylation, but what's your overall stance on the importance of these genetic variants? Do you ever find it necessary to do specific genetic testing or do you mostly go by other clinical findings and lab results? Um, well, you know, unlike Tommy Wood, I'm not a practitioner. Um, but, uh, you know, the overall significance is MTHFR is very common and it impacts nutritional requirements. Therefore, it's quite significant. 
but it's not a diagnosis. It's not a disease. I mean, I didn't, I didn't look at Tom's uh, podcast or video, um, but I've, you know, I've been absolutely tremendously buried in the literature. And uh, I think, um, I think a, a lot of this, a lot of this sort of like anti-MTHFR stuff is blowed back to nonsense perpetuated by what most people are saying about MTHFR. I mean, most people treat it as a disease that they're diagnosed with. And it's not that, it's just, uh, but it impacts your nutritional requirements. So why wouldn't you attempt to accommodate that? I think the evidence is better for that than most other SNPs that people are using to make nutritional recommendations. Uh, there are some RCTs on it. Um, you know, so I don't think it's going to make or break people's health. I think people often exaggerate the significance of it. I think that should be criticized, but I won't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So hope that answered your question. Anonymous says people on a long-term low-carb diet with a high protein intake seem to develop, in many cases, a high fasting blood glucose level. This is often explained as a, a way as adaptive glucose sparing due to the downregulated food expression in muscle. But it seems like the homeostatic set point for blood glucose has changed in these people. Why do you think this is? Um, well, I, I mean, when you're um, probably from low insulin levels, you know, like if uh, if you have lower glute expression. If you want to get glucose in the muscle, you're going to need higher blood glucose levels to do it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's um, I don't know if glucose sparing is right. I mean, I think if you have lower insulin mediated glucose. Uh, glute 4 expression in adipose and muscle, you're A, going to need more higher levels of blood glucose to get glucose in there, but that's sort of assuming it's a physiologically positive response. Um, you know, you could equivalently say, well, less glute 4 means you've now, your major, uh, major organs that are, your major sinks of glucose disposal are now, have now taken a big hit. Um, and so therefore you're, you're glucose intolerant because you can't dispose of glucose as effectively. And that's one way of looking at it as well. Um, I think elevated blood glucose is sufficiently known to be pathological that it would be unwise to assume the sort of more generous interpretation of that as a physiological response I think it would be a much better approach to do what you need to do to get your blood glucose levels into the healthy range. Um, otherwise, I think it's, it's quite a gamble to, uh, to presume innocence of that elevated blood glucose. Or I shouldn't say innocence, but you know, lack of harmfulness. Victoria says, thanks a million. You're welcome, Victoria. Uh, last question. Anonymous says, can supplementing desiccated adrenal impact serum cortisol levels? Uh, I have no idea, but I do know that one of my internet friends once a long time ago ate a slice of fresh adrenal 
and had hot flashes so bad that she had to submerge herself in an ice bath to try to cool off the panic and heat. So um, I do think that adrenal contained hormones and that it could affect your hormone levels. Not sure how much cortisol is in there uh, and how, what quantitative effect it has on cortisol at the doses people take. So I, I don't think I directly answered your question, but I hope that kind of helps a little bit. Thank you for your question, Anonymous. And thank you, everyone. We are now done. It was great being back in the AMA, and hopefully I can get these going at least monthly or maybe a little more than that from now on. Uh, thank you to everyone who participated, and you will get the recording of this soon. Take care, guys. Uh, stay safe and healthy, and thank you very much.